Welcome to another inspirational message by Pastor Ron Hammonds, Senior Pastor at Golden Triangle Church on the Rock in Beaumont, Texas. For more information about Church on the Rock and Ron Hammonds Ministries, visit cotr.com. The past six weeks, we have been studying a Faith That Works series. And uh, it was only a six-week series, and so we were to have concluded it this past week. Um, and we, you know, six weeks worth of faith that works, uh, answering the questions, what should I believe and what should I do? We were in a faith that works in the face of failure. Uh, you know, uh, failure and unanswered prayer. Faith that works in the face of unanswered prayer. Faith that works in the face of love. Faith that works in the face of abuse, divorce, fear. We covered all six of those in the past six weeks. And we have received so many comments and so many encouragements, not just from uh, the congregation, but folks that are listening and watching. Hello, all of you that are watching and listening. And, you know, uh, some of you I know you're... Uh, you're at home. Uh, in fact, I think Brenda just texted, someone just asked, can I get the notes on the app? Yes, if you have our new Church on the Rock app, you can get the notes on the app and follow along. Uh, and you can go to the app store and you can, look at her, uh, Miss Betty Bebo's got them right back there with her. You can go to the app store and you can search for, what is it, uh, Pastor Luke? It's a C-O-T-R app. And it'll look like Golden Triangle Church on the Rock with a little house kind of thing in it, okay? And then you can also find and make sure that uh, when you go there, that's a little church thing. Uh, there are a lot of things that that app does. And we want to encourage everyone to download it because that app will also be used in days to come uh, for us to, um, you know, uh, give some information. Should we ever get into a situation where, uh, you know, our community has a great need, we can use that to communicate with people that have that app. And so we like to stay in touch with everyone. You can put your prayer request there. Uh, and on April the 1st, it actually goes into full swing. Uh, all our things that are electronic giving, online giving, will be funneling through that app as well. And so uh, just encourage you to download it. And you can uh, look at it tonight if you want and get those notes and follow along. Well, after six weeks of faith that works in the face of all these various things that we've been facing, um, you know, people from around the world have been contacting me. Preachers have telling me that they're preaching this. They're preaching it, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm right with you. I'm doing your Wednesday night series and I'm doing the Sunday morning series and I'm just, you know, two weeks behind. And so uh, they really didn't want this to run out because it seems pretty easy, this faith that works things. And so I have one more in me tonight we're going to answer these two questions again. What does God want me to believe? And what does God want me to do in the face of sin? Faith that works in the face of sin. Faith in the face of sin. Wow, that's not easy to say. Faith in the face of sin. And tonight we're going to be going to 2 Samuel chapter 11, a familiar Bible passage, but we're going to look at it and we're going to find out what God wants us to believe and what God wants us to do whenever we have sinned. Now, let me throw this out there just in case you might think that you can live the rest of your life without sin. It is a good goal, and the Bible uh, encourages us, and he writes to us that we sin not. He said, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. And if you say you have no sin, the Bible says you are a liar, and the truth is not in you, okay? If you say that you are perfect, 
well, then you're only trying to fool yourself. You're not fooling God or anyone else. And so we are in constant need to make sure that we do what we should do in the face of our failures, in the face of unanswered prayer, in the face of divorce, in the face of abuse, in the face of love, in the face of fear, and also in the face of sin. Okay? And let's begin in 2 Samuel in verse number 1. Now, this is an account of King David. This is a little later in King David's life. He's been the king now seven years in Hebron, and then he took Jerusalem and, and came and he was made king over all of Israel now for another number of years. He is living in Jerusalem. He's the king. And guess what? It's about this time of the year. In fact, that's what verse one says. It happened in the spring of the year. Now, that will figure in in a moment to something that's important about what we face in life. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab. Now, Joab was the captain of the armies of Israel. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Y'all remember the Hittites, right? Yeah. They were supposed to, you know, not be confused by these Hittites. Y'all remember? Well, evidently, David gets a little confused here with his Hittite. Then David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house. Now evidently a month went by. Maybe, uh, you know, there's an indication that, that uh, at least a month, maybe five or six weeks went by. And all of a sudden, Bathsheba realizes that she is pregnant. And her husband has been gone for a long time, off at war with Joab and all of Israel. When she realizes she's pregnant, you can continue to read in that story the following verses. She goes to David and says, David, I am with child. He says, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? I know this will be good. I will send to the battlefront and I will have Uriah, the Hittite, your husband, come home and bring me a message. I'll tell Joab, send Uriah to me so that he can tell me how the war is going. And so he sends a message to Joab and Joab sends Uriah back to Jerusalem and he comes in to see David and, and David learns from him how the war is going and David pats him on the back and says, goody, 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 I'm glad, you know, hey, listen, won't you take a couple of days and rest here in Jerusalem before you go back to the battlefront. He's expecting, of course, that Uriah, who just lives, just, I mean, David sees his house. David can look onto the rooftop of Uriah's house. I mean, it's just, it can't be very far. It can't be 
you know, maybe out there about, you know, where our portiche is or a little farther. Some of you have been with me there to the ruins of David's house, you know, just it had to be right down the hill. And much to David's dismay, when David goes to bed at night, he's all happy. He's, you know, oh, I got it fixed. I got it covered. You know, everything's okay. Whoo, that was a close one. <laughs> None of you have ever felt that way, have you? Well, David awakes the next morning only to find out that Uriah had not gone home that night. Uriah had slept on David's doorsteps. Why? David wondered. Why in the world would a man who's been on the battlefront all this long time, why would he not when he came home and is only just, you know, maybe, you know, a, a, a few meters, a few yards right down the road, why wouldn't he go home and, 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 and you know, eat and, and take a bath and, and clean up and enjoy his bed and, and, and sleep with his wife? What is the deal here? And so he calls Uriah in and Uriah, he says, Uriah, why didn't you go home? And Uriah said, how in the world could I go home? Whenever Joab and the army and the Ark of the Covenant, you see the Ark of the Covenant, the presence, the power, and the glory of God has also been taken out of Jerusalem. It was out on the battlefield. Everybody and everything was on the battlefield except David. Everybody had gone out to the mission field but David. <laughs> he said, when the Ark of the Covenant is out there and whenever the soldiers of Israel are out there, and whenever all of our hope is out there and they're fighting, how could I lay in a clean, warm bed or go and sleep with my wife or go and take my comfort knowing that all of my brothers are out there fighting for us? I can't do that. So David thinks, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I've got to get this guy to sleep with his wife. I know. I'll invite him in to dinner tonight. So David invites him into dinner and David, the Bible says, you can read it. It says David got him drunk. Okay. David figures, ah, uh, he's a man of principle, but a little bit of wine, maybe a lot of wine will you know, make him feel a little bit different about going home. Maybe he'll forget his commitments, forget his covenant. Well, it ends up that that night it didn't work either. He slept there on that doorstep again. David said, well, won't you hang around a couple of days? David was kind of hoping things would, you know, change. And when they didn't, David and Bathsheba conspired. And they decided what was best was to send Uriah back with a note, a sealed letter. Take it back to the captain of the armies, to Joab, and send him this message. And so Uriah took the message from David and carried the letter and gave it to Joab. And the letter read something like this. I want you to find a place where the battle is hot, where the battle is raging. And I want you to send Uriah the Hittite, the man that just brought you this letter. I want you to send him right up in front of the battle lines and I want him to be killed and I want him to die. Well, as time has it, Joab obeyed David and he sent Uriah up into the very heat of the battle. The Bible says that Joab knew. He knew the place where there were some valiant men, some really tough enemies. 
And so he sent Uriah right up into the heart of the toughest enemies he could find. And then when he was up there, according to David's orders, Joab made the others withdraw, come back, don't support, and left them up there by themselves. Well, the Bible tells us that not only was Uriah the Hittite killed in battle, but also David lost some of his friends there too. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad that we cannot limit the ancillary damage to the things that we purpose and perpetrate? Well, it ended up in verse 14. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite died also. Verse 25, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband another 40 days according to that custom. So now it's been three, maybe four months. Verse 27, and when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her into his house and she became his wife. And bore him a son, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see, it was the spring of the year. Do you know what that indicates? The spring of the year indicates to us a season, a season that comes every year, but also seasons of life. It indicates to us that there is a set time when kings went out to war because they, that they had many months in which they could fight without fighting through the winter. But it also signifies to us that it was a new day. It was something new and fresh. It was a season whenever the, you know, uh, uh, people are expecting something, they're wanting something new. The springtime is a restless season. It's a time whenever we want to get outside. We want to go places. We want to do new things. We want to experience new things, not just each year, but in, in seasons of our life. And here David was. Everyone else was gone to war, but David stayed home. The Bible says it was a time when kings went to war, but David didn't go to war. Why? Because David had gotten wealthy. David had gotten secure. David had gotten happy. Listen, we have to watch it, not only when we're down and out, not only when we're in the valley, but we have to watch out when we're on the mountaintop, when we're doing good, when everything is going great, that's when most great men fail. Not when things are going bad, but when things are going great. When things start going good for you, watch out. Be careful. Here, David is doing well. He's, at the, he's, he's absolutely, you know, I mean, he is the king of all of Israel and, and the king of, and God is with him in the Ark of the Covenant and everything is going great and wonderful and it came time to go out to war and David stayed home. Why? Because he didn't have to fight anymore. His army was so big and powerful. But at home, alone, without the Ark of the Covenant, you know, let me tell you, just because the tent was there didn't mean God was there. The Ark was not there. And the Ark of the Covenant was the presence, the power, and the glory of God. 
It was where God wanted it to be just because the tent was there. You know, there, there are some times in the Old Testament where people offered incense to God. God called it strange fire. Just because it was fire didn't mean it was God's fire. Just because it happened in the tent, just because it happened in Jerusalem, just because it happened with, with David, with God's anointed, didn't mean it was God. It was a great time for David. But the ark was in the battlefield and David was home, alone, bored, estranged from the presence of God and without those to whom he had peer relationships around him. All of his close people that surrounded him were no longer speaking into his life. David was bored and David saw something new. Okay, he's in bed in the evening. He just, he, he gets bored and so he gets up, the Bible says, you know, and in the evening and he, and he walks around his house and he walks out on his roof and he goes, whoa, there's something new. I haven't seen that before. <laughs> it's a woman and she's bathing on her roof. Wow, look at that. It's evidently springtime for Bathsheba as well. Lonely, alone, husband gone to war, you know, the air is changing. There's pollen flowing around everywhere and, you know, and the birds and the bees are chirping and I think I'll go out on the rooftop and get naked and take me a bath. It was springtime. Boy, you got to watch springtime. You got to watch those seasons in your life in which all of a sudden you find yourself hungering for things that are new and more and better and dynamic and exciting and wonderful. It's not that God's not wonderful. It's just that not everything is wonderful. David and Bathsheba committed adultery and then they conspired to murder her husband. And then after that, they got married as if nothing unholy had ever happened. But God was displeased. You can read the rest of the story in 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's a wonderful, wonderful account. I'll briefly tell you a little bit so that we can get to, to our message for tonight. Faith. What should I believe? And what does God want me to do in the face of sin? David answers this question for us. Because he is definitely in sin. David and Bathsheba living in the palace in Jerusalem, all the tracks are covered, but God's not happy. What happens? Well, Nathan, the prophet came to David and told him a story. He said, listen, there was a rich man and a poor man and the rich man had so many sheep. Oh my goodness. You can read about it in, 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 in second Samuel chapter 12. The rich man had so many sheep, so many, I mean, wonderful. And the poor man only had one little sheep, one little ewe lamb. And he loved this little lamb. He treated her like a daughter. It was wonderful. It was the only, he was so poor. It's the only little lamb he had. And he loved this little lamb with everything he had. And the rich man had some people come and visit him. And he, he needed to cook them some dinner. And instead of getting one of his lambs from, one of, from, from all of his hundreds and hundreds in his flock, he went over and stole that rich man's lamb and killed it and fed it to his guests. David was enraged. He said, who is this man? Man, as surely as I live, this man's going to die. I'm going to kill him. And on top of that, I'm going to make sure that, that he is restored four times as much as was taken from him. Nathan the prophet said, you are that man. All of a sudden, revelation came to David's heart. David, he 
he didn't know what to do. So he did what his faith told him to do. When David's heart smote him, he repented. You know, that's, that's pretty much all you can do. Unfortunately, you can't turn back the clock. You can't undo. You can't unsay. You can't unmurder someone. David's heart smote him. He repented. And then David and Bathsheba went through the death of their young son. Sin cost. Let me tell you how much it cost. It cost David and Bathsheba, their son. But for your sin and my sin, it cost God his son. You don't have to read this story in fear. You read this story in faith. Because God always points at redemption. God gave his son for my sin. For your sin. That's what it cost. And then David and Bathsheba had a brand new day. I do not understand this. I'm going to tell you this probably has given me more cause for reflection than most any other Bible account uh, that, that I've ever ran across. How that one moment, it could not be the will of God for David and Bathsheba to be married, and the next moment it could be. I don't understand that. I don't understand how in one moment their child dies because of their sin, and in the next moment they have a child named Solomon whom God loved, and God blessed their union, and Bathsheba is one of the great-great-great-grandmothers of Jesus. I cannot wrap my little puny mortal brain around this. God is so awesome. He is so absolute. He is so unanimous in his opinion. He is so absolutely redeeming and forgiving. God is amazing. I do not imagine how anyone could live up to what he can do. But he can. One day... All of those who have passed on from this life to the next and thus we will all be joined together as one great family on a new heaven, in a new earth and, and with a new heaven and, and there will be righteousness and we will not want to sin anymore. We will not want to, you know, I, I mean, I cannot imagine this. I cannot imagine a world where, where, where there's no pain, no sickness, no sorrow, no worry, no anxiety, no frustration, no defeat, no fear. No fussing, no fighting. I cannot imagine a world like that, but it's coming. That's how awesome God is. And I see his awesomeness in these details. How that God so blessed David and Bathsheba's union. You see, there's nothing can be done about yesterday, but giving it to God truly. And then letting God give you a new day. It wasn't all right and it'll never be all right. And time alone will never make wrong right. But repentance does something. David wrote a psalm about this account. We're going to read it. It's Psalms 51. It's David's testimony 
of faith in the face of sin. How can I have faith whenever I have sinned? I have disappointed God. David was a man after God's own heart in covenant with God, and yet he sinned. He committed two of the mortal sins, two of the worst sins known to mankind. How in the world did he recover? How did he keep his faith? Psalms 51, David wrote this to the chief uh, musician, verse one says. It's a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Are you ready? Let's read this Psalm. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitudes of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. You hear David? David's talking to God about his sin. Blot out my transgressions, God. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. David never forgot what he did. It was not his goal to forget. Verse four, against you, God, against you, you only have I sinned. Boy, there's something good to put in your pocket and realize all sin is committed against God. And done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge Here's what David is saying. David said, you know, forgive me of my sins, blot out my transgressions, but I want you to know something. You are right and you are holy. And if you judge me and you blame me, that's up to you because you would be right if you did. God, you would be right to judge me wrong. And I will not blame you no matter what you do because you weren't the one that was wrong. Boy, there's a heart of repentance. It's not forgive me, God, so I don't get hurt. It's not forgive me, God, because I'm afraid of hell. It's forgive me, God, because I am wrong. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. God, you just want me to be honest with with me. You, You desire me, Lord, to be honest on the inside with you. That's the only way over that hump. It's the only way over that. The only way to have faith is to have faith to stand in front of God. And if you are not afraid to stand in front of God, then you don't have to be afraid of anything. And he says... You desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. You will tell me what to do in here. It's in here, God. You see, there's nothing you can do about what you did. Do you know that God, when God had Samuel way back there, when David was probably about 14 15 maybe. When God had Samuel pour a horn of oil on David's head as a little shepherd boy and say, you are the king of Israel chosen by God. God knew already what David was going to do. And he made him a king anyway. Because God knew that even if David did not have what it took to be perfect. God had what it took to make him perfect. When he called you, he called you knowing what you did and even knowing what you're capable of doing and he 
loves you anyway. That's how we can have faith. In the face of something terrible that we have done. God just wants us to be honest. He just wants us to know and hear what it is that he wants us to do. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. God, my broken bones, I am broken on the inside. Not just from the loss of his son, but from the loss of God's pleasure in his life. God had removed his pleasure from him and and and. David felt alone and lonely and knew God was not happy with him. And and God, I just want you to make me hear joy and gladness. And and God, that the bones that, that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, help me to be a better example. Lord, make me steadfast. Make me better than I was. God. Lord, help me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, O God, the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. God, you're kind, you're loving, you're you're good, Lord. Restore me, Lord, from your generosity. Then, if you restore me, God, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. God, if, you, if you'll help me, Lord, I will be the example. I'll let my light shine. That's what I will do, God. Well, in those first 13 verses, David is dealing with the adulterous affair that he had had. Now in verse 14, he gets to the murder. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. Man, David's not going to let it rest. Not going to let one sin stay in his life. Okay, one, you know, one, two, got that, take care of it. Let's go to the next one, Lord. You know, just getting forgiven of one thing whenever you've done five things is not enough to give you that honesty before God that cleanses the soul and restores joy and hope and makes you able to be an example and just, you know, uh, you know, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Have you ever felt so guilty you didn't even want to open your mouth and say anything to anybody? That's how David felt. That's depression. David was in a place where he just couldn't He didn't even have any energy or any joy. He didn't have anything good to share. He said, but God, if you will, Lord, if if you will open my lips, God, if if you will just, Lord, um, give me that joy, Lord, then I will show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice. That's what the prophet said. 
Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No, that's what Micah said. For he has shown you, O man, what you shall do and what is right. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. That's what the prophet said. God will not accept sacrifice. He has sacrificed his son. He said, if sacrifice, Lord, if sacrifice is what you desired, I would give it to you. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. That's what the prophet Isaiah said. Prophet Isaiah speaking for God says, your new moons and your sacrifices, they are a stench in my nostrils. I don't want you to sacrifice not one more bull to me. Just live right. That's what Isaiah the prophet said. Chapter one. For you do not desire sacrifice, I would give it. You do not desire burnt offering, Lord. You don't delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, here's what they are. You want to sacrifice something? It's a broken spirit. It's not feeling guilty, it's feeling broken. It's a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. When your heart smites you before God and understanding you've displeased him, these, O God, you will not despise. You will accept these, God. Verse 18, do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. God, don't let me interrupt what you are doing, Lord, with your people and with your plan, O God. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. You'll be pleased with the people, Lord, when you finish building them and working on them with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Well, let's answer these two questions. You probably already have them answered. Number one, what does God want me to believe in the face of sin? This is what God wants you to believe. That he still loves me even when he corrects me. Even when I've done wrong. That God still loves me. God still loves you. You've got to, that's what you should believe. And you've got to believe that, that when you do something wrong or bad or, or difficult, you can't believe that God has stopped loving you. He didn't want to hear about, about it anymore. And he doesn't want to talk to you. Or, you know, you can't go believe in that. That's not the truth. The truth is he is the most loving, forgiving, merciful, kind, gracious. We can't even understand it. But this is how we have faith. Whenever we have sinned is we must believe that God still loves us. He still wants to see us. He still wants to talk to us. He still wants to bless us. He just wants us to come closer to him. That's what he wants. He never wants to push you away. Or say, he never says, I don't want to talk to you right now. He never says, get away from me. And what does God want me to do in the face of sin? Do what David did. He prayed and he praised the Lord even when the Lord corrected him. Even when he had to go through some difficult moments, he talked to God. He was just honest with God and he praised the Lord. That's what God wants you to do even when you have done wrong. God wants you to make sure that you know that he still loves you. He wants to see you. And he wants you to come close to him and lift up your voice and praise him. Lord, no matter what you do to me, I will praise you. 
This is what Job said, though thou slay me, yet shall I praise thee. Wow. What does God want us to do? He wants us to repent. Repentance, there's two Greek words for the word repentance. One is metanoia and one is metamolomai. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? Metamolomai and metanoia. Why two words for repentance? Because one word for repentance means that I got off the accelerator when I saw the policeman and heard the siren and saw the lights <laughs> because I got caught and I feel bad and I stopped because I didn't want to have to pay for it. The other one means that I got off of the accelerator when I saw the speedometer because I realized what I was doing was wrong. And even though there was no policeman watching me and no threat of me getting a ticket, I changed. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to take our foot off of the accelerator when we see the speedometer. And we realize that we are you know, doing what we shouldn't do. And we change. And it's not impossible to repent after you get caught. That works too. Sometimes it's a little more motivation. <laughs> okay. And a third thing that David did that God wants us to do in the face of sin. David said, Lord, you know, when you restore me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach and turn sinners to the love and the forgiveness of God. Lord, I'm going to teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you, God. Lord, all you got to do, Lord, is just give me the chance and I'm going to be the example and I'm going to share with others, Lord, how to stay out of sin in their lives and situations. I'm going to help. Amen? So what does God want us to believe in the face of sin? That he still loves us. What does God want us to do in the face of sin? He wants us to pray and praise him. He wants us to repent, change our heart, change our mind. And he wants us to make sure that we teach others and turn sinners towards him. That's not too difficult, is it? Amen. Well, that's number seven in faith that works. Don't ever think that God does not want to talk to you. He wants you to be honest with him. Get somewhere that nobody else can hear you because it's nobody else's business. Okay? And just get honest with God. Okay? He desires truth in the inward parts. Okay? And it's against him that we transgress. And when he forgives us, Everybody else just kind of has to get in line. You can read that in Peter, okay, and uh, in Romans, okay. All right, I love you.